Welcome to this episode of the Revolution and Ideology podcast, our Myth is America series. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be going over Shea's Rebellion and the post-war period in colonial America that oftentimes gets glossed over by uh, our standard historical narrative, though most historians point to this specific period as absolutely critical in the establishment of the United States as a country. Uh, very important, many very important things take place in this short period of time that are key for the future of what the country becomes and gives us an insight into how the people themselves, uh, the quote-unquote commoners, felt about what was going on. Uh, so yeah, we're going to be covering Shay's Rebellion this time. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. And Jared's going to kick us off. So one of the things we left off with in a prior episode, and we left off with a lot of things, but that episode was just kind of a brief synopsis of usually overlooked parts of the actual conflict itself, from uh, the help of the French to the side war that the Americans fought against indigenous people and the beginning of ethnic cleansing campaigns by what would become the United States, to, of course, the the debate on should they use uh, African-American troops to finally one of the more clear points of emphasis we, we had in the last episode was how poorly the actual troops were treated in George Washington's Continental Army. Uh, obviously, at the beginning, there were those very idealized militias that were willing to fight against the British. But over time, both uh, Washington as commander in chief and Congress realized they were not getting the numbers they thought volunteering. So they resorted to conscription um, and drafts to kind of force people into uh, fighting the war, and a lot of these guys were not treated very well um, during the time. We know that mutinies took place because they were not properly fed or housed or clothed. Um, we also know that there were numerous, numerous executions by Washington's officers uh, that were ordered for sometimes even small infractions that they could frame as perhaps treasonous or mutinous. So yeah, they were treated awfully. Anyway, it doesn't change after the war. So once these soldiers are no longer active and they become veterans, uh, not unlike Daniel Shays, who Nick's about to talk about, uh, they were uh, also treated very poorly. Now, most of these troops were promised some things. Um, at the bare minimum for a three-year enlistment, as we talked about, uh, they were offered 20 bucks of continental currency, which even for that time period was still pretty pretty awful. And the fact that it was backed by nothing made it almost worthless. But what was of value is they were also promised 100 acres of land for fighting in the entire war. And uh, unfortunately, a good portion of these soldiers were never awarded their land either. Uh, and the reason I'm emphasizing that is because there's going to, what we're going to see is the origins of a very clear class discrepancy where the elites will be asking basically the everyday people, maybe even the poor, to fight their wars for them, do their work for them. And when those people seek their recompense or their just compense, um, the elites, of course, uh, they do not fulfill their promises. And again, this is the origins of, of some very clear class stratification, in this case, using military service as one of those distinguishing marks. And that will be a hallmark throughout American history, where we at least verbally will say we revere the veterans or the people that are fighting for us or fighting for our freedom or liberty or whatever we're told. But then in actual practice, when those people actually need things, whatever those things might be from in the 1700s, 100 acres of land to modern day times, actual real access to mental health, we are not fulfilling these promises. And, and, and we're here to say it's been that way from the get go. So a great example we have of this comes from the uh, war veteran, the uh, revolutionary war veteran, excuse me, war for independence veteran. It is definitely not a revolutionary war. Joseph Plum Martin. And he writes a narrative of some of the adventures, dangers, and sufferings of a revolutionary soldier. Now, this doesn't come out until about 1830, so a good, uh, what's the math on that, nearly 50 years after the war for independence is over. Um, but it's still quite revealing some of the things that he finds. And, and, and the introduction here in the excerpt I'm going to read is, is, is actually pretty powerful. So I'm going to read it verbatim here. When those who engaged to serve during the war enlisted, they were promised a hundred acres of land, each which was to be in their or adjoining states. When the country had drained the last drop of service it could screw out of the poor soldiers, they were returned adrift like old, worn-out horses, and nothing said about the land to pasture them upon. Congress did indeed appropriate lands under the den denomination of soldiers' lands in Ohio State or some state or a future state, but no care was taken that the soldiers should get them. 
No agents were appointed to see that the poor fellows ever got possession of their lands. No one ever took the least care about it except a pack of speculators who were driving about the country like so many evil spirits, endeavoring to pluck the last feather from the soldiers. The soldiers were ignorant of the ways and means to obtain their bounty lands, and there was no one appointed to inform them. The truth was, none cared for them. The country was served and faithfully served, and that was all that was deemed necessary. It was soldiers. Look to yourselves. We want no more of you. I hope I shall one day find land enough to lay my bones in. If I have a chance to die in a civilized country, none will deny me that. A dead body never begs a grave. Thanks for that. Powerful. It is powerful. And I mean, if we look into it, I mean, this is how he feels. And again, he's now had five decades or four and a half decades to reflect upon what happened. He never got his land. He knows that he faithfully fought for this country for all of these various causes. He, in his case, he was an enlistee, it sounds like, not a draftee or a uh, or, or conscripted. So he volunteers to fight for this uh, very progressive cause for the time period. And he is thanked by not receiving anything he was promised. Soldiers, look to yourselves. We want no more of you. They're used and tossed aside by the government. And again, that is not unlike what we see in veterans post-World War II or veterans post-Vietnam War or veterans post-Gulf War or veterans post-Iraq War. Like there is a common thread here in U.S. history to, again, in name, support our veterans that fought for whatever cause that we were to, we were told was just and you know the country will say in speeches leaders will say in speeches how much they support the troops and maybe they'll get a round of applause coming off an airplane and people will throw a yellow bumper sticker on the back of their cars but when it comes to actually the practice of helping people or rewarding people or giving them what they are owed very rarely happens these days why is that? Part of the reason that we're spending so much time on this, the, the beginning period of the country and definitely the beginning period of the narrative is because in this Myth is America series is because we're trying to illuminate the fact that so many of the problems that we see today in modern America get their beginning from the beginning of the country. Straight from the jump, these things were problems, and they have continued and continued and continued, whether it's the treatment of veterans, whether it's race relations, whether it's uh, creating immigration crises, like Jared mentioned in the last episode, on and on and on. We see all of these things start rearing their heads in the very beginnings and creation of the country, and then we somehow expect, we, we, don't, we get to modern times and somehow have no idea how these things still exist. Well, they've existed from the beginning, and there's never been anything to try to actually solve them. Right. And like I said, it's not even just dirt. It's not even just post-war. It's even during the war. Joseph Plum Martin and some of these other excerpts, we begin to realize that even, even fulfilling promises while combat is taking place is obviously it's very difficult. It's very difficult for them to fulfill these promises. We don't know why it's so difficult. You promise something, people are going to fight for your cause, in this case, independence from Great Britain, but you can't fulfill it. Um, even the 20 bucks they were promised actually has to be like extended out to like a monthly salary. And we find out that, of course, it's still paid in continental currency, which Nick's going to dig into later, ends up, be, later, ends up being worthless, uh, even when they're trying to pay back debts to these very same people. It ends up being worthless. Plum Martins goes on to say, and what was the $6.67 of this continental currency, as it was called, worth? It was scarcely enough to procure a man dinner. It was worth nothing. So even what they were being paid monthly, after it, we realized the war is going to rage on a lot longer than anyone anticipated, even the monthly salary they're given, absolutely worthless. Um... He says, he kind of closes out in this section, he says, I really hope these people will go, will not go beside themselves. Those men whom they wish to die on a dunghill, men who they had not ventured their lives in battle and faced poverty, disease, and death for their country, to gain and maintain that independence and liberty in the sunny beams of which they, like reptiles, are basking. They would, many or the most of them, be this minute in as much need of help and succor as ever the most indignant soldier was before he experienced this country's beneficence. But the revolutionary soldiers are not the only people that endure uh, obliquy. Oof, I butchered that word. Others, as meritorious and perhaps more uh, deserving than they are, are forced to submit to ungenerous treatment. 
So Joseph Plum Martin is is actually not only calling out like what happens to him and his fellow soldiers, he's actually also calling out all of the other abuses that he sees around him. And this is important because all the way back in 1830 when he's writing this like recollection of his service in the military, he's now seeing it. He's had four and a half decades to see it in practice in other parts of society. So the same ethos and mentality that has been used to abuse, chew up, and spit out the soldiers for various causes is also being spread around the country like it's the same ethics so it's not just vets that are being abused like it it's the same mentality uh that crosses over into all other aspects of society and that's who the united states is that's who he sees the leadership as maybe not obviously the people as he represents the people but leadership all forms of governance what do you think of that nick yeah i think we're starting to see the perspective of the common man here in this case which we very rarely get in any historical narrative, right? We get the great man story, but we never really hear what the common people think about what's going on and their perspective on events and the world around them. And I think this is a great example of that. Yeah, I mean, we're going to close out with Joseph Plum Martin here because I we want to get this this title this issue, this episode's titled and focused on Daniel Shays. We want to get to that example, so we are going to go a little bit back in time. We just like to start with uh, Joseph Plum Martin's account because he is a he is a vet, he's a soldier, he served, he never got what he was promised, and clearly he's he's pissed off. But he helps frame the actual the, the way things took place. Daniel Shays exemplifies them. So let's start talking about Daniel Shays. Yeah, before we jump into that, I'm going to give a a little timeline of events because like I said I think this period in history is glossed over a little bit so hopefully this will help us to understand kind of what's going on here so we obviously talked about the end of the war Jared talked about the battle of Yorktown um, just so you know the British surrender they signed the Yorktown articles of capitulation on October 19 1781 so the end of the year in 1781 the Treaty of Paris was signed on September 3rd, 1783, officially bringing the war to the to an end. But keep in mind, that's a two-year gap there. So troops remained stationed and ready to fight for two full years after uh, the Battle of Yorktown. So that's important to understand. Then, on June 21st, uh, 1788, New Hampshire became the ninth state to ratify uh, the document. And it was some sub... sub subsequently, wow, agreed that the government under the U.S. Constitution would begin on March 4th, 1789. So New Hampshire becomes the ninth state to ratify the Constitution, and on March 4th, 1789, the Constitution uh, goes into effect. So there's five and a half years between the official end of the war and the U.S. Constitution going to into effect. And we almost never hear about this period save hearing about maybe the Constitutional Convention or something, but we never really hear about what's going on with like common people at this time, which is what we're going to focus on in this episode. So the question is, what was going on in this time? And in our perspective, and many historians' perspective, basically this was a period of crisis in the colonies. Uh, and we like to talk about the rebellion, the insurrection, we call it, that took place during this period. Um, and in our revolutions class, we talk about frequently almost every single revolution has counter-revolutions, and the American quote-unquote revolution is no different. There were counter-revolutions, and we actually consider Shay's Rebellion a counter-revolution. You would never hear that in like a high school history class, of course, because they only talk about counter-revolutions when they're trying to, for example, denigrate the Russian Revolution or the Cuban Revolution and talk about how Castro and Shay's regime wasn't loved by the people evidenced by counter-revolutions, but we have to understand that even in the colonies, there were counter-revolutions, and we think that Daniel Shays is one of them. So that's what we're going to talk about, and that's what was going on during this period before the U.S. Constitution uh, was, was put into place. So let's talk about Shays. Um, this takes place 1786 to 1787, and we'll do a breakdown of the specific events that take place here. Um, but think about, for a few years, soldiers in the Revolutionary Army were returning from the war and trying to rebuild their lives. So think about what this must have been like. It, it depended on how long you fought in the Continental Army, but you could have been gone from your actual physical home for years. And like Jared told us in the previous episode, many times their wives were with them in the camps, cooking and 
sewing the clothes, etc. So literally, it could have been that no one had been at your home for years. So you're coming back and trying to completely rebuild your life in your house that has been empty. If you had any land, then the land has grown fallow. It hasn't had any crops in it for years. So you're coming back to basically, you have nothing. You have to start from scratch. Even if you own physical land, it's worthless at the time. You have to rebuild that land, put crops back in the ground, uh, till the soil, etc. Um, so think about that. The vast majority of the population were farmers. Here we're, f- spoke, we're focusing specifically on Massachusetts, and the statistic is that 85% of the population in western Massachusetts was farmers. So they're coming back to their land, like I said, and trying to get that going again. As Jared just talked about in that quote, most of them never got paid for their service, or they were paid in some form of continental uh, or state currency. Both of them were circulating at the time, and both of them were essentially worthless. Yeah, they got the currency. It's just the land they never got because the currency was worthless and the land was not. I mean, yeah. It's that simple. So think about uh, – Jared already told us about the continental currency, but states themselves had also created their own currencies. In fact, I think Massachusetts was the first. Uh, so there was state currency at the time too. Um, inflation was outrageous. And there was legislation that required accepting of the paper money, but it basically never got enforced. So stores were not required to accept the paper currency. And as Jared talked about, basically relatively none of them received the land that they had been promised, that 100 acres. Well, and Plum Martin mentioned real quickly like that band of speculators in that that, that first quote I read, and that was like one of the main issues. If you have been following our podcast, you'll know dating all the way back to the French and Indian War, like this, the Ohio Valley Company, this land speculation company is what started this whole chain of events by trying to seize Ohio land, Starting a war, a war that was expensive, the British begin to tax to pay back for the war. The taxes, of course, it pisses people off for various reasons. We went through that. And then all of a sudden, here we are, another war. And and it's all based on this idea of land speculation and seizing land. So the odds of them ever giving this land to the people that actually deserve it are slim to none, right? This all started because these greedy people in the Ohio Valley Company, Washington Brothers, Governor Dinwiddie in Virginia, like these elites wanted to exploit that land, take it from the French and Indians, and they sure as shit didn't want to give it away to free to poor Americans. They wanted to sell it to them yeah, there's with no pro- interest. There's no profit yeah. in giving 100 acres to a soldier, you know? Yeah. For sure. Um, okay, then another super interesting fact that I think probably no one learns about, and I didn't know this until I started researching this a, couple, a few years ago, every colony was charged with repaying its portion of the war debt. So remember, there is no federal government at this time. They're living under the Articles of Confederation. I mean, there is. It's just a weak one. That, that, right. that Yeah, it's just the, the Articles of Confederation, which we'll talk about in a future episode. Yeah. So they calculated the tally of the war, and then they split it up and divided it amongst the colonies. And it's actually super interesting. I found a ledger, actually, in the state legislature of Massachusetts that goes through uh, their war debt. So... Massachusetts is responsible for its portion of the debt, just like the other colonies. As a result, taxes are incredibly high. Each colony increases taxes to help repay this debt. The number that's agreed upon by historians is that in Massachusetts specifically, since that's where we're focusing because that's where Shays lives, taxes were three to five times higher than they were before the War for Independence. I'm just going to say that one more time. Taxes were three to five times higher than they were before the war. So this war that was... Hold on. I want to say it one more time. After the war for independence, the new governments of the United States in these individual states taxed their people more than the British ever did. To be clear. So you're returning from war, you're a farmer, your land lies fallow, your home perhaps hasn't been occupied for years, depending on how long you served and whether or not your family, uh, at least your wife probably, was with you in the camp, etc. But you're also in debt, because you probably didn't own your land outright, and you're going to need incredible resources to bring your farm back into production. So you're going to have to go out and get equipment and animals and etc. So almost everyone was in incredible debt. Now, interestingly, 
there was an act called the Tinder Act. And I'm going to read a quote by a man by the name of George Minot. He was a clerk for Massachusetts House of Representatives and later became a municipal court judge. This is a quote from a letter that he writes at the time. He says, A great part of the community were yet loaded with ancient debts, made still more burdensome from an increase of interest. Private contracts were first made to give place to the payment of public taxes. Okay, so in that quote for a second. So he says, most people are in debt. Interest has been increased by the debt collectors, just to add uh, injury, insult to injury. And that it's understood among everyone that you were to repay your private debts before you paid your taxes. So, okay. Quote again, from an idea that the scarcity of specie did not admit the payment of both. So he says most men couldn't pay both taxes and their private debts, so they would pay their private debts first. This is Minot again. The former, therefore, the former private debts, were made payable, able, in other property than money, by an act of the 3rd of July, 1782, commonly known by the name of the Tinder Act. By this, it was provided that executions issued for private demands might be satisfied by neat cattle and other articles particularly enumerated at an appraisement of impartial men under oath. So, under the Tinder Act, you could repay your private debts with other articles. So, it could be cattle, it could be other things, and essentially you would get these things appraised by someone that wasn't your debt collector or you yourself. So a third party would appraise them, assign them a value, and then you would give them to your uh, debt collector and they would write off that portion of your debt, whatever that value was. So under the Tinder Act, you could repay your debts uh, without using paper money. You could reuse other goods, so cattle, etc. So taxes, though, have to be paid in either paper money, so the state-issued currency, or silver or gold currency. So inflation is super high, but you can use your paper currency to pay back to pay taxes, if you had any, which most people did not. So I want to also stress that this time in Massachusetts and in most of the colonies, currency still was kind of a new thing. Most people were still bartering. It was still a barter system. So you would trade your cattle or your crops or your whatever for other goods that you needed to survive. So currency isn't even widely circulated yet at this time. So it's this weird sort of economic milieu that exists uh, during this time in the colonies. That exists until the repeal of the Tinder Act 25th of January, 1781, the Massachusetts State's Legislature repeals the Tinder Act and establishes law that says, A, no merchant is required to accept paper money. So completely, even though this law wasn't enforced anyways, now there is no legal requirement that any merchant accepts paper money. So that renders it basically completely useless if it wasn't completely useless before. And it establishes that all taxes must be paid in silver or gold. So you no longer even have the option of paying your taxes with paper currency. Now you must pay your taxes in silver or gold. And I, I, I don't know if it's even necessary to say that clearly no commoner had any silver or gold. That was not a thing. So you basically are unable to pay your taxes if you're a commoner. Um, and you're no longer able to pay your debt with uh, cattle or other articles. And now no shop is required to take your paper currency. So basically you have no means to pay for anything essentially if you're a commoner because you clearly don't have silver, silver or gold. That's not a thing for someone that's just a farmer in western Massachusetts. Just consider how much more difficult it is to repay your debts in this this new just ridiculous taxation system, even compared to what they thought was the oppressive British system. Even the British system, like most of the duties you'd pay, and that's why they weren't some of them weren't even officially taxes, they were duties, you just paid them through your purchases. Did it suck paying a little bit more for tea or paper or lead or whatever it might – or stamped paper or whatever it might be? Uh, yeah, yes, there's no denying that. But again, so much simpler than what the new United States is uh, forcing its citizens to do. And it's most um, – Honestly, I don't want to use the word destitute. They're not destitute. They had a pretty good life, like I said, in comparison to like the average British citizen. But it's most, let's say, economically vulnerable or financially vulnerable population, what they're forcing them to do, the hoops they're jumping through. It's it's absolutely obscene. All right. So let's paint a picture of uh, what it's like to be a farmer in Western Massachusetts at this time. You just fought in the war for independence. And you fought this war against unjust taxation, this burden 
burdensome tax that basically made you a tributary slave, quote unquote, right? You return home to your follow land and you have absolutely worthless paper money. That's what you were paid for your service. It literally, you'd be better off just burning it for warmth at this point. Then the state government, who's essentially still the only law in the land at this time, increases taxes and imposes new taxes to help pay their portion of the war debt and passes legislation that prevents the payment of taxes and debt in this paper currency that you have and requires their payment in gold and silver, which you absolutely don't have, you obviously will find yourself thinking, what did I just fight this war for? You owe three to five times more taxes than you owed before the war. You have more debt than you had before the war because, this is also interesting, your land debt was accruing interest the entire time that you were serving in the war and you weren't paying any of it because you were obviously off fighting. And you can't legally pay the debt or the taxes in any form of currency or any other goods that you have in your possession. Well, what would you do? Well, Job Shattuck and Daniel Shays lead a rebellion. And that's what we want to focus on uh, in Massachusetts, obviously. And it's interesting because the way that they target this, uh, I'm going to call it straight out oppression, economic oppression here, is that as the farmers lost the ability to pay their debts, their lands began to be seized by the people that held those debts. However, this required a legal proceeding in the local courts. So they had to take them to debtor's court, obviously, and there had to be a proceeding so that the people that held the title to the land could legally seize it, not unlike kind of a foreclosure on a home or something like that. Uh, Though I don't know, you don't technically have to go to court for that, I guess. It's just a legal proceeding that exists outside of the court system. But it didn't back then. You had to go to court. So what they did was organize and... They organized protests to shut down the courts to prevent debt collect hearings from being processed. And when I say protests to shut down the court, most of the time, these were veterans armed with their muskets and bayonets, literally blocking access to the court building so that the court proceedings could not take place. Now, I also want to just take a moment to talk about the fact that They're doing this logistically so that the court proceedings can't take place and so their properties can't be seized. But also this is hugely symbolic because the courts are the central symbol of power and authority in Massachusetts. I mean, anywhere really at this point in time. The judicial system had been sanctioned by the state constitution. So the Massachusetts state constitution gained its authority from uh, uh, the judicial system, gained its authority from the constitution. So the courts are basically the symbol of the power in the land at the time. So it's crucial that these courts, uh, we understand that they're also, it's hugely symbolic. So now I'm going to run through a timeline of some events that take place, uh, and we're going to do this quickly because there are an astonishing number of them uh, that take place. This is in 1786. We're going to start in August and then lead us up to 1787 when things get heated. So the first one, on August 29th, 1786, what are called the Northampton riots occur, uh, where the court in Northampton is stopped by protest. So legal proceedings are prevented from happening in Northampton, uh, August 29th. The next week, rioters, 300 of them, most of them armed, stop the courts in Worcester. By the way, I just want to correct myself. In the previous episode, when we were talking about uh, Spooner, one of our previous episodes, I said Worcester. Apparently, that's incorrect. I'm not up on my East Coast pronunciation. Uh, It's Worcester, and I now know that. So if you were listening to the previous episode and were uh, not happy with my pronunciation, my apologies. So 300 rioters stopped the courts in Worcester. September 2nd, so just about a week later, uh, we now get the introduction of the governor of Massachusetts. He's a man by the name of James Bowden, and he's going to play a crucial role in here. On September 2nd, he issues a public proclamation against the protesters. Uh, Basically, he publishes an article in the newspaper that says, stop protesting. Uh, That's about it. That's his uh, public proclamation. Uh, Eight days later, uh, on September 10th and September 11th, there are the Great Barrington Riots, 
in which the courts are stopped by 800 uh, insurgents. I have the word insurgents in my notes here, so I'll just go with that. Uh, so they riot again, many of them armed, and they stop the court proceedings in Great Barrington. On September 11th and September 12th, in Concord, a mob of 300 protesters stop court proceedings. September 11th, the courts at Taunton, protected by a local militia, who are first outnumbered, they had 100 men, then 300 joined their ranks, but the mob has 400 men. So this almost breaks out in a battle. Luckily, it doesn't. The court proceedings do take place, uh, protected by the militia. A few days later, September 22nd, we're still 1786 here, the courts at Charleston, held under the protection of two companies of artillery and several companies of militias, uh, take place. So we can just see now how the response is forming. So they've started to put together local militias. And in this case, they actually have artillery to protect the courts and ensure that debt proceedings can take place. Next, to protect the courts at Springfield, 120 militia are ordered out. The next day, insurgents gathered, but the Northampton militia reaches Springfield on September 25th. Both sides, the numbers, increased to about 300 men. On the 26th, the numbers had doubled to 600. And on the 28th, the insurgents had increased from about 1,200 to 2,000 men. And the militia is about 600 to 800. So the insurgents, the protesters here, are anywhere from 1,200 to 2,000. And they more than outnumber the militia uh, by double. However, the militia does protect the court. But, interestingly, uh, even though the building itself was protected, the proceedings did not take place because it was such a dangerous atmosphere. So, essentially, in that case, here, uh, the, the protesters get their way. Even though the building itself is physically protected, the court proceedings don't take place. Uh, that's in Springfield. In anticipation of the October session of the Supreme Judicial Court at Great Barrington, a mob assembled, so protesters assemble, and judges don't even bother to show up. It's such a dangerous environment now at this point in Massachusetts uh, in the court proceedings that the judges don't even show up, and so the proceedings don't take place uh, for that October session of the uh, Supreme Judicial Court in Massachusetts. Now, we get some action uh, at the federal level here. They begin to recognize that the rebellion is gaining steam, and these actions are picking up, and their numbers are increasing, and there's a federal arsenal in Springfield, Massachusetts. This is going to become important later on as well. So the federal government begins to become fearful that this uh, arsenal is in jeopardy. So on October 20th of 1786, the Continental Congress passes a resolution to add 1,340 soldiers to the nation's 700-man army. I do just want to pause there for a second. Remember, the federal government is merely operating under the Articles of Confederation at this time, and it basically has no power. So its army at the time is 700 men. That's it. But on October 20th of 1786, they pass a resolution to add 1,340 more soldiers to their 700-man army in case they need to protect the arsenal in Springfield. Interestingly, Congress knows that if they publicly announce that they're putting together this army to fight against the protests in Massachusetts, that no one will join. So they literally just invent a cause and they say that there is a growing Native American threat in the Ohio Valley, and that's why they need to raise these troops to go fight the natives in Ohio. It's interesting to note that their lies, no one believes them. Everyone knows what's going on. They know that this army is being... Uh, put into action to fight against the citizens of Massachusetts. And so even though they wanted 1,300 soldiers that they tried to get in October, by January, a few months later, only 100 men had volunteered to join the army because they knew that they were going to be fighting against the fellow citizens. So that's super interesting, and I think it, uh, it bears a little bit of focus to know that the people of the time, the would-be soldiers, knew that they were, they were raising this army to fight against their fellow citizens, and they refused to join. So even the federal government could not get uh, their troops together. In late October 1786, the Massachusetts State Legislature passes the Militia Act, and I'm going to read a quote of this. It says, quote, 
Any officer or soldier that shall abandon any post committed to his charge or shall speak words inducing other officers or others to do the like in time of engagement shall suffer death. So what they're seeing here is the militias also don't want to fight because they don't want to fight against their fellow citizens. And in fact, many of them are sympathetic to the cause of the rebellion. In fact, many of them begin to participate in the rebellion. So the state legislature has to pass this act that if anyone abandons their post, essentially, they will be punished by death because so many people are deserting the militias because they don't want to fight against their uh, fellow men, their fellow farmers, etc. So the Militia Act is a key point. It's a key event in this timeline. Then we have October 24th and 25th. Um, a mob appears to shut down courts, but they are protected by a few uh, local militia members, so they are allowed to uh, continue. I don't have a location on that one. Just understand that this was taking place all over Massachusetts at all of the various courthouses. Then on October 26th, the state legislature convenes in an extra session because this is getting so heated, and they pass the Riot Act. I'm going to read the excerpt from the Riot Act uh, directly. Quote, Sheriffs and other officials shall be held indemnified and held guiltless for killing rioters who failed to disperse or resisted capture, and that rioters shall forfeit all of their lands, tenements, goods, and chattels to the commonwealth, and shall be whipped 39 stripes on the naked back at the public whipping post, and suffer imprisonment for a term not exceeding 12 months. While in jail, the rioters were to receive 39 stripes every three months." Also, gatherings of more than 12 armed men were made illegal. So let's just talk about that for a second. The state legislature of Massachusetts passes this act that basically gives sheriffs and any other public officials free reign to murder any protesters that don't disperse when they tell them to. And those protesters forfeit all of their lands, everything they own, whipped 39 times and will be put into jail for 12 months. And while they are in jail every three months, they receive 39 uh, lashes. That's the riot act. If you've ever heard the saying, like, give someone the riot act, that's exactly where this comes from, because it is so absurd and completely oppressive. Uh, so that's passed by the state legislature on October 26th. November, um, it was again necessary to guard the courts at Taunton because of the presence of 200 uh, protesters. On November 10th, an act was passed by the state legislature to, and I have this bolded and underlined in my notes, suspend habeas corpus until July 1st, 1787. So basically for seven months, they're going to suspend habeas corpus in the state of Massachusetts. This act gave the governor and his council the authority to imprison, quote, all persons whatsoever who, in their opinion, were dangerous to the safety of the commonwealth in any jail in the Commonwealth. So this is just wholesale permission for any officials to imprison anyone without officially charging them, anyone that they deem to be a danger to safety. Now, I'm going to ask Jared just for a second, because this happens throughout history a few times. What is the significance of suspending habeas corpus? What does that actually mean? <sighs> Where do we even begin? I mean, essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to streamline like your sanctions and punishment. You're trying to actually make it as quickly as like you're trying to – I don't know how to frame this, I guess, succinctly. Essentially, you're, you're trying to ensure that your way of thinking, your way of doing things in terms of like putting this person in their place, essentially, it takes, takes place as quickly as possible. You're suspending their rights. Um, and, of course, this dates back to numerous prior empires under British law. I mean, there were even things like this under Roman law. I mean, basically, all of this is meant to impose sanctions – or potential sanctions as quickly as possible. It's also side-skirting side the legal processes that are in place and the rights that people have, the rights to appear before a judge, the right to not be imprisoned without being charged. It's all of these things, right, for a period of time. Suspending habeas corpus gets around every single one of those uh, legal rights that citizens, in this case of the state of Massachusetts, would have otherwise had. Hugely, hugely significant action. So in the state of Massachusetts on November 10th, 1786, habeas corpus was suspended. So that's an important note that many people uh, don't understand. And I think it just gives us an idea of how impactful these protests were. 
what the environment was like at the time for them to take such extreme uh, measures. Okay, now we have the demands of the rebels. So during this time, they publish their demands. Uh, these get published in a local newspaper. There are uh, seven of them. I'm going to read them so you can see what they actually want. Because these aren't just, uh, we have to understand, these they're organized. They're not just riots that are taking place. They're shutting down the courts for very specific reasons, and they have very specific demands. So here they are. The first, the general court, for certain obvious reasons, must be removed out of the town of Boston. This was one of their big complaints because... Boston was actually pretty far from Western Massachusetts. So if you're a farmer in Western Massachusetts and there's some kind of court case, like say they're seizing your land and your debt proceedings are taking place and they happen to be taking place in Boston, you have to stop working your land, stop working on your farm and take the trip all the way to Boston. So they say the vast majority of the population lives in Western Massachusetts. They're all the farmers. So it makes sense for us to move the general court somewhere closer to the population. That's the first demand. Second demand, a revision of the state constitution is absolutely necessary. Okay, so that's a pretty general demand. They don't have specifics there, but they continue. Their third demand, all kinds of government securities now on interest that have been bought from the original owners for two shillings, three shillings, four shillings, and the highest for, for uh, six shillings and eight pence on the pound, and have received more interest than the principal cost of the speculator who purchased them, that if justice was done, we verily believe, nay, positively know, it would save this commonwealth thousands of pounds. So they're saying... All kinds of government securities that were bought for pennies on the dollar and now are gaining interest that we have, we have to pay back, we basically should just eradicate all of that debt because it's ridiculous and that it would actually save us money, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, if we did that uh, because all of us commoners owe this debt and we, we're, we can't even basically survive. Fourth demand. Let the lands belonging to this Commonwealth at the eastward be sold at the best advantage to pay the remainder of our domestic debt. Now, this one I love. They're basically saying all of the eastward part of the uh, of Massachusetts, like Boston, like the ports, etc., why don't we sell those off to the highest bidder and then pay the war debt with that? Instead of coming out of all of us, the commoners and the farmers, having us to pay, why don't you just sell off Boston? We don't care. Sell the land, sell the coastland, sell it all to whoever wants to pay and pay the debt with that. Their fifth demand, let the monies arising from import and excise be appropriated to discharge the foreign debt. So, Instead of having us pay income taxes, etc., or whatever taxes you're collecting on us, let's have import and excise taxes and use those to pay off all of our debt, the war debt, essentially, so that it won't be such a burden on us that we'll spread the burden evenly with the importers and the producers, essentially, in the eastern part of the state. Sixth demand. Let the act passed by the General Court last June by a small minority of only seven called the Supplementary Aid for 25 years to come, be repealed. So they passed this act called the Supplementary Aid Act, and it was an act where the total state debt, both foreign and domestic, was calculated and taxes were imposed to begin to settle it. So when I mentioned I found this uh, ledger where they actually calculate all those things, it was part of the Supplementary Aid Act. So they calculate all of the, the debts that are owed, and then they impose this huge new tax to everyone to try to pay those debts. So their sixth demand is, let that be repealed which would eradicate the taxes. Their seventh demand, the total abolition, abolition of the inferior court of common pleas and general sessions of the peace. So basically they say, get rid of the, the lower court system. Just completely get rid of it. Uh, their, their goals here are probably to uh, slow or prevent the debt proceedings from taking place. So those are the seven demands of the rebels that they publish. Then on December 26th of uh, 1786, Shays uh, and his crew stopped the court in Springfield. Now, this was a huge uh, an event because it was so close to the arsenal that was in Springfield. This draws the attention of the government, and now uh, shit starts to go down, basically. Though I want to pause for a second and read a letter that Daniel Shays writes uh, at this time. Uh, it's one of the few actual primary sources from Shays himself that we have. He writes this January 25th of 1787, so a month almost to the day of them stopping the courts in Springfield. This is what he has to say. He says, Sir, 
Oh, by the way, he's running this to General Lincoln. General Lincoln was the general of the Massachusetts, most of the militias uh, in the area. And he'll actually uh, become more important in just a second. So he's leading these troops that are going against the rebels. He says, Shays, sir, unwilling to be any way accessory to the shedding of blood and greatly desirous of restoring peace and harmony to this convulsed commonwealth, we propose that all the troops on the part of government be disbanded immediately. And that all and every person who has been acting or any way aiding or assisting in any of the late risings of the people may be indemnified in their persons and properties until the setting of the next general court. And no person be taken molested or injured on account of having uh, above said risings of people until a fair opportunity can be had for hearing in the next general court. Respecting the matters of complaints of the people and that all matters rest as they are on parts uh, until that time. And all persons that have been taken on the part of government be released without punishment. The above conditions to be made sure by proclamation issued by His Excellency the Governor, on which condition the people now in arms in defense of their life and liberties will quietly return to their respective habitations, patiently waiting and hoping for a constitutional relief from the insupportable burdens they now labor under. That's signed, like I said, January 25th, 1787. So he basically says, you guys... Lay down your arms. We'll lay down our arms. Release everyone that you've arrested as part of this rebellion. Uh, we'll all go back to our houses and we'll remain in peace until we can come to some agreement that lifts the burdens uh, under which we all live right now. And he's talking about burdensome, burdensome uh, debt and taxes at this point. So he basically offers kind of an olive branch and says it's a peace offering, right? You guys lay down your arms, we'll lay down ours, let's have a peaceful resolution to this uh, conflict that's been going on, and let's try to work it out. So that's uh, written by Shays in 1787. Uh, it falls on deaf ears. Uh, we don't, I think that's unnecessary to say because we know that the re rebellion continues. So, also in January of 1787, Governor James Bowden attempts to raise a state militia. So he goes to the state legislature and says, uh, we need a militia that's run by at the state level to help us fight against the rebels. However, interestingly, the state legislature itself refuses to authorize the request. And the reason for doing so is because they recognize that many of the citizens, in fact, the majority of the citizens actually side with the rebels. So keep in mind, the state legislature, they're all politicians, and they know that their chance of getting reelected is going to be very slim if they raise this militia to fight against the citizens of Massachusetts. So Bowdoin goes to the uh, state legislature, asks for a militia, and he gets denied. He doesn't stop there, though. He continues. Since the state would not authorize a militia, he goes and requests 6,000 pounds from the business elite to raise 4,400 private troops to protect the interests of the wealthy. So let's just put this in terms that we can understand. The governor goes to the wealthy elite that live in the state and says, if you all go in and give me 6,000 pounds, I will raise a private army and I will protect your interests. I will protect the courthouses so that the debt proceedings can take place and that you can reclaim this land uh, from these people that aren't paying their debts and so on. Super interesting move by the governor. It takes a really long time. Eventually, he raises the money. At first, the elite want nothing to do with this. He himself actually puts in, I think it was 250 pounds. And then slowly over time, people start investing in this private army and he raises the money. However, they can't get any men to join the army. So out of the 4,400 that he initially wanted, only 1,200 men join the militia. Again, most men side with the rebels, so they don't want to join the militia that uh, is going to fight against them. However, the one benefit that they do have, since they had such money donated by the business elite, is that uh, they were heavily armed. They have artillery and uh, weapons that the rebels do not have, because the rebels obviously don't have the money to fund such things. Then, Shays decides to do what the federal government has been expecting all along, and he decides to arm his rebellion by seizing the federal arsenal in Springfield. And they put together a plan. Now keep in mind, the leaders of this rebellion are all veterans of the war for independence. So they're all experienced in warfare. 
They split the, rebel the, re the rebellion, the army, into three regiments, and each regiment is led by a veteran officer of the Revolutionary War. So one is led by Shays, one is led by a man named Luke Day, who will become important in just a second, and I honestly don't know who the third person is that led the third regiment, uh, but it's kind of inconsequential to our story anyways. So they're split into three regiments, they split up, and then they decide they're all three going to attack the arsenal on January 25th. So um, they have this three-pronged attack that's going to come from the three regiments that they've created. Now, this is where things go awry for the rebels and their efforts. Luke Day, who, like I said, is one of the regiment leaders, decides to change the plan and to give the private army 24 hours to surrender. So he and his regiment decides that they're going to delay their attack by one day until January 26th. He sends message to the other two leaders, so to Shays and the other person uh, that's leading the other regiment, but it gets intercepted by the private army and never arrives. So this is basically sealing the fate of the rebellion. So one third of their regiments are now going to be 24 hours delayed in arriving at the arsenal, and the other two leaders have no idea that this is going to happen. So the private army, the 1,200 men, they arrive at the arsenal first, and they seize it in order to protect it. Interestingly, though, if we're just talking legalese, that's an illegal act. It was an illegal for this private army to seize a federal arsenal. Clearly, the federal arsenal is federal property, not state property. And even if it was state property, the private army is not authorized by the state to seize the arsenal anyways. Essentially, they're no different than the rebels who are trying to seize the arsenal. It just ha so happens that they're trying to protect it. So, two of the regiments arrive. Um, but the private army is already there. They've already seized it, and they are uh, uh, the private army outguns the rebels, who, uh, uh, like I said, are one third their populate their forces are one third smaller than they should have been. So a skirmish. I have skirmish here in my notes. It's not really a battle. A skirmish breaks out, uh, and four men were killed, and many others were wounded. This basically marks the end of the rebellion. The rebel troops retreat. They fight smaller battles along the way, and they eventually disband. Within a few days, very quickly, the state legislature sanctions 1,500 troops and authorizes... Uh, the, well, I'll get to that in a second. So they, uh, after seeing this, the, so they're like, yeah, clearly this is a problem now. The troops actually did try to seize the arsenal. So they uh, sanctioned 1,500 troops to go and protect the arsenal. And then this one always gets me. In addition to that, the state treasurer issues funds to reimburse the businessmen and cover the army's expense. So these private wealthy elite that funded this private army to protect the arsenal, the state itself pays them back, which in my opinion is completely absurd. I think it's ridiculous. It's taxpayer money is the irony here, like right? That's where the state gets its funds from, is these same taxpayers that it has clearly been abusing throughout Nick telling of, of this, Nick's telling of the story when we're talking about, of course, taxing them, the debts, the court system, the fees, um, all of these things that are associated, all of these funds are then that are being stripped from these people and they're fighting back, are then taken to fund the army that is oppressing them. That is amazing. I mean, it's almost astounding how awful these Boston elite are. Yeah, 100%. And it's not even just that. I mean, in, in some of my sources, it, it, they actually made money on this action. They actually got paid back more from the uh, state than they invested in the army to begin with. Yeah, so if you're a wealthy elite that had invested in this army, you got a pretty good ROI. Some of them, they paid, some of them got paid interest on the money they had invested in the private soldiers to protect their interests, which is just asinine to think about. It's ridiculous. Okay. Most of the, so what happens to the rebel soldiers after this? Most of them are absolved of guilt upon taking an oath of loyalty. So basically the state government says, if you take this oath and you sign on this sign on the dotted line, basically, then we'll absolve you of all guilt of the actions that you uh, performed during part of the rebellion. So I'm going to read it. I don't know if I'll read the whole thing, but just to, so you can see what the oath of loyalty was like, quote, 
I do truly and sincerely acknowledge, profess, testify, and declare that the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is, and of right ought to be, free, sovereign, and independent state, and we do swear that we will hear true faith and allegiance to the said Commonwealth, and that we will defend the same against traitorous conspiracies and all hostile attempts whatsoever, and that we do renounce and abjure all allegiance, subjection, and obedience to the King of Great Britain, and every other foreign power whatsoever, and that no foreign prince, person, prelate, state, or potentate hath or ought to have any jurisdiction, superiority, preeminence, authority, dispensing, or other matter, or other power in matter, civil, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'm not going to read the whole thing. The wording is ridiculous, but you get the idea. The thing that I think is interesting is here, and they make them renounce all allegiance to any king of Great Britain and any other foreign power. Now, that j- just evidence that they are viewing this as a counter-revolution, and they are afraid that these rebels actually still have allegiance to Great Britain, whom they just defeated in the War for Independence, which is super interesting. And it's also interesting because uh, we can look back now as historians and know that they clearly didn't have any allegiance to Great Britain. They were fighting against the oppressive government that was uh, economically express- uh, oppressing them, obviously. Okay. Luckily, James Bowden, the governor, gets his in the end as a result of his oppressive and obviously questionably legally uh, legal handling of the rebellion, which most politicians in the state absolutely disagreed with. He loses his reelection campaign for governor. Interestingly, he loses that reelection to John Hancock. Uh, So John Hancock becomes governor. John Hancock, the entire time, had publicly supported the rebels, but before we start talking about how cool he was, he, it's basically just a political move. He's doing it because he knows the mass majority of the people agree with the rebels' cause, and so he knows himself publicly supporting them will probably get him elected, and it does. Um, then he's a shrewd politician, and as soon as he gets elected, uh, basically, he uh, pardons Daniel Shays and all of the remaining uh, rebels. So they never actually get charged or really imprisoned or none of them executed, uh, as far as I know. As far as I remember, um, as soon as Hancock takes office, all of them are pardoned, including Daniel Shays, though he had already escaped. And I can't remember where he goes, but he he lives somewhere out of Massachusetts for a while uh, until he gets pardoned. And I think he comes back. I can't remember the end of his life, but I think that's what happened. Then in my notes, I have just an interesting quote from Sam Adams, one of our uh, quote unquote founding fathers. Uh, He was in the state legislature in Boston uh, for Massachusetts uh, during the rebellion. He wanted to come down super hard on the rebels. He thought that Bowden's actions weren't even harsh enough. He actually advised Bowden to go and uh, get the private army together after the state legislature refused to fund a militia. This is a quote from Adams on the militia. Quote, In monarchy... The crime of treason may admit of being pardoned or lightly punished, but the man who dares rebel against the laws of republic ought to suffer death. End quote. It's just so ironic that just a few years before, Adams was a champion of violent revolution. Now, how fast has his opinion changed on revolution when now it's this quote-unquote republic that he has created that is being jeopardized? He's it's an just, asshole. It's just so interesting. The hypocrisy yeah. here is just— he's, he's one of the worst by far, like one of the worst. From the slave rhetoric during the time period um, to the constant rabble-rousing to the tarring and feathering to the burning of officials' homes to, I mean, to, to this now, the hypocrisy of people rebelling and fighting for the very cause that he said he was fighting for years earlier. And these are the actual boots on the ground. These are the veterans that actually put their lives on the line against the British. And he is ordering or calling for their death. Sam Sam Adams, I I don't even know that I can hold back. He's a piece of shit. Absolutely. Just absolutely. Yeah, it's absolutely obscene that he can be able to, that he can, I mean, there's this much cognitive dissonance there. Or was he even a revolutionary to begin with? I mean, that's really the question revolutionary hypocrite piece of shit maybe all of those things i don't know yeah he's a he's a guy um though it makes me feel a little bit better that after the rebellion he ran for the u.s house of representatives and lost so he did not win that was in 1788 perhaps maybe as a result of his uh statements on the rebellion that was actually popularly supported then just to take us out here i have how this relates to George Washington specifically. And this is so key, and we so 
often do not ever hear about this, and we don't know about this part, this period of Washington's life. When Shays' Rebellion breaks out in 1786, George Washington had been retired for three years. He's 54 years old at this point. So after the War for Independence, he basically retires. He's done. He's not a politician. He's not a general any longer. He goes back and he's just going to live out his days at, what's his estate called? Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon, yeah. So he's just going to live out his days there. He's done. However, General Lincoln was a good friend of his, and I mentioned General Lincoln earlier. General Lincoln was the leader of the militia in Massachusetts in the beginning and then became the leader of the private army raised by Bowdoin. So Bowdoin recruits him to lead this private army that had been funded by the elite. So he's super close friends with George Washington. So Lincoln is providing Washington with updates this entire time. And there's actually super interesting letters uh, between the two of them. I'm not going to read any quotes here, but it's very evident that Washington's up to date on what's going on with the rebellion. So Washington had never intended to return to public life. I just want to reiterate and stress that he's done. He's 54 years old. He fought in the war for independence. He's done doing anything. He just wants to chill for the rest of his life. But the spirit of rebellion generated largely by Shays' rebellion is so strong that it actually scares Washington into returning to public life. So he agrees begrudgingly to attend the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia as a delegate of Virginia. So that, that's all he agrees to do. And he doesn't even want to do that. You can read the letters and he's like, he doesn't want to, but he's like, fine, I'll agree. As a delegate of Virginia, I'm going to attend this uh, convention to make sure the Constitution gets created. And uh, that's all I'm going to do. Then well, while he's, he's, sorry, I didn't yeah, mean to cut ahead. you off. But I mean, I, even dating back even a year before some of this stuff, Henry Knox had noticed some of these rebellions were not just like cropping up and going to crop up in Massachusetts as his most famous Shays one, but they were in places like Rhode Island and Connecticut. And Henry Knox, who eventually, under the new government, will end up in George Washington's cabinet, his fresh new cabinet, was writing him letters all the way back in 1786 like, hey, things are going down in these places and they're being led by people that are being overtaxed or taxed too much in their vets. But he, Knox is not being nice about it. He wants Washington to come back and put together some sort of federal entity to put down these rebellions. Yeah, I can't stress enough. I guess we're kind of glossing over it because we're focusing purely on Shays. But this entire period, there are rebellions in the colonies all throughout the colonies. There are, we might, If you want to, we could call them counter-revolutions, right? But these are rebellions by the people because they're being so oppressively taxed and you have to put yourself in their shoes, right? They just fought a war against oppressive taxation. Then all of a sudden they're being oppressively taxed. Like I said, in Massachusetts specifically, three to five times more than before they fought the war. In fact, Henry Knox, when he's writing one of his letters to Washington in 1786, even goes through like the, the six places that he feels like they need a little bit of bolstering, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maryland, and Virginia. Mm-hmm. So, he agrees to attend the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia as a delegate of Virginia, though, like I said, he doesn't want to. Once he's there, he gets selected chair of the convention, again, kind of against his own wishes. He doesn't really want to do that either. And then, as we all know, he becomes the first president of the United States. And I want to stress, because most people don't know this, there was no election. He gets appointed as the first president. Uh, the people did not get to vote. So, he basically goes from retiring and not wanting to do anything, to attending the convention, then getting elected chair of the convention, and then getting appointed president of the United States. He doesn't want to do any of it, basically. He's done. But he understands, basically, he's motivated by the spirit of rebellion that's taking hold in the colonies. He wants to ensure that what they fought for in the war uh, survives uh, this rebellious period. So he begrudgingly agrees to do all of these things. So it essentially brings George Washington out of retirement. Had it not been for the spirit of rebellion, we, the, the latter part of Washington's life and his legacy as the first president wouldn't be a thing. And that wouldn't be part of the, the origin narratives of our country, which is just super interesting to think about. Um, so yeah, that basically wraps up our episode on Shays and the spirit of rebellion that existed after the War for Independence, the period that many historians point to as a crisis in the identity of the country. And uh, things could have gone very different ways. I often think, you know, we always do the historical what ifs. What if Luke Day hadn't decided to delay his attack by a day and all three uh, prongs of their attack had reached the federal arsenal? Would they have armed themselves? And I do want to stress, just so we're clear on their intent, 
there's a newspaper article where they say they interviewed Daniel Shays and they ask him what his tent would be on season the arsenal and his quote I'll paraphrase because I don't have it in my notes was he said our goal was the destruction of the constitution and there he's talking about the state constitution of Massachusetts so he had revolution in his mind for sure anything to add no, uh, again, I mean, we can just close out with this idea that Shay's Rebellion is going to be one of many events that we're going to cover throughout this podcast now that the United States has officially established itself. So finally, like, we got through, like, this early history and colonization and Jamestown and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and now we're actually talking not about, like, British colonial leaders or French colonial leaders or Spanish colonial leaders. Like, all these things now are going to be directed um, at what is specifically the United States and what we're going to be emphasizing are these points of contention. Um, and Daniel Shays is like the first real example, um, or at least detailed example. Like I said, there's other, other rebellions going on. Detailed example of people that are willing to fight for the freedom that they were promised from this revolutionary war period on. And they're willing to fight for it and it will be the state. It will be the state, the new country that knocks them down. Yeah, that's super important to point out. Yeah. The state prevents them from achieving what they want to achieve, which is important because, spoiler alert, that's going to be a trend for this podcast and for the history going forward uh, up until today. Uh, so, yeah, we'll close it out there. Um, you can catch us online at revolutionandideology.com. Send us a message on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. If you enjoy the episode, uh, share it with your friends and tell them about it and that will help us gain listeners. Go into your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and a review if you enjoyed what we said. Um, yeah, until next time, I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.